Well, turn with me, if you would, to the book of 1 John, chapter 5, as we are now finishing our series through the book of 1 John, a book that is meant to bring us much assurance and comfort as believers. Uh, 1 John, chapter 5, I'll begin reading at verse 13 and down through the end of the chapter, all the way down through verse 21. First John chapter 5, and starting at verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to us. Let's go to him in a time of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this epistle of 1 John, for the assurance it brings to us as John, by the inspiration of your spirit, has written these things not only to these first century Christians, but also to us directly. We thank you, Lord, for all these words that we have heard. May your spirit illumine us once more to understand the things that we are going to hear this afternoon. And we pray these things in the name of our only true assurance, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we come to the end of 1 John, to the end of this first epistle that John has written to this group of churches in Asia Minor, in modern-day Turkey, who are dealing with questions and doubts and pain from those who have walked away from the faith. And we come and we find that finally... We have seen to us, John has told us exactly what his thesis statement is, exactly what his point is. Now, maybe you're in the point of your life where you are still writing papers for school, or maybe you're just looking back on that and trying to forget it. But if you remember, the thesis statement is what tells the person reading your paper what it is that you're trying to do, what it is that you're arguing for, what your main point is, and everything else is kind of leading towards that main point. That's what John gives us here in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. This is John's purpose in writing, to give assurance to those who believe so that they can know not just anything, but that we can know that we have eternal life. It's very similar to what John said in his gospel in chapter 20 of the gospel of John, verse 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Very similar in that sense, that John is written so that we may know Christ is the Savior. First John is written so that believing in Christ as the Savior, we may know that we have eternal life. That these things are building one upon the other. And so we'll see these last three things as we come to the end of John's letter, these last instructions, these last words that he wants to leave these people with as their pastor, in a sense, as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And we'll see three headings having to do with assurance and how it affects other things. First of all, we see assurance and prayer in verses 13, 14, and 15. And we read in verse 14, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, 
that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. And so we see that John is saying here that the confidence that we have in Jesus Christ, the confidence that in him we have eternal life, leads us to confidence in prayer, to confidence before God, essentially. That verse 13 leads to verse 14. Now, I realize that's not exactly a statement that's probably shocking to you and surprising. That's how verses tend to go. But John is really building an argument here. I'm writing to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, who believe in the name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior, the only Messiah, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we can go before him in prayer, essentially, that we have a standing before God to go to him in times of prayer. Really, that's a shocking thing, isn't it? That we can have confidence before God, the maker of all earth and the heavens, the one who is holy, holy, holy when we are not. And yet John wants us to know that we have confidence in Jesus Christ as we believe in his name, that we have eternal life. And part of this confidence includes being able to confidently approach the throne of grace. He's saying this to ordinary Christians, ordinary Christians like you and I, who are dealing with these antichrists, with these false teachers who have gone out and perhaps have come back and tried to steer people in the wrong direction by saying, you need to really become a superstar Christian like I am to deny some of these things and to really get it to where God speaks to you. And what John is saying is, no, you who believe in Jesus Christ, ordinary though you are, common though you may be, have eternal life and therefore have confidence before God. That our assurance leads to confidence and prayer. Not just that God tolerates us, that he lets us into his presence even though he's somewhat annoyed with us, but that we have confidence that he himself has brought us into his very presence that he desires to hear from us, and that he will hear us as we pray to him. But we can ask at this point, well, we can pray anything, right? That's sort of the assumption that you may run into at this point. Boys and girls, we have to remember what it is that we read there. I know I've heard this verse countless times from the time I was young, and my inclination was, this is telling me I can pray for anything and I'll get it. Of course, what happened is I kept going in the life that I have, and I kept praying for things that were, quite frankly, ridiculous, and I didn't get them. That the Ferrari never came, that airplane never came, all these other ridiculous boyhood dreams never came, even though I prayed for them as hard as I could. So what exactly is John telling us here in verse 14? This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And so that's the qualifier there. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. It's not that God will grant our request no matter what it might be, but that if we pray according to his will, then certainly this is the way that he has determined to give us these things that he wants us to have. And so we can ask at this point, it's just a natural question. Okay, so what is his will? How should I be praying in confidence to my God and Father in this way? Well, for one example, we can go to the Lord's Prayer. We have different examples in Scripture of different prayers that show us what God's will is. We can go to his law. We can go to his gospel. We can see what his will truly is. We can go to places like Psalm 37 and verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Something very similar to what we read here in 1 John. If we pray according to what God has revealed to us, if we pray according to what he as will is for us and for all people, we can understand that he will hear those prayers and that he will answer them. And so what a comfort that is to us. As we go about not only today, but our weeks and our months and our years and our lives, 
as ordinary Christians. I hate to say that in a way that makes you think that perhaps you're less than you need to be, but as a matter of fact, we are ordinary Christians. We're men and women and boys and girls who are trusting in Christ and Christ alone and can't really bring anything to him. As we go about our lives, we can have confidence, though, that if we truly believe in the name of the Son of God and we have eternal life, that we can go to him in prayer. And so go to him in prayer. That's what John is encouraging us to do. If we have this confidence, everything he said in these first five chapters that we've seen already in 1 John that leads to assurance ought to lead us to prayer to our Heavenly Father and to know that we will ourselves be heard. And what a comfort this is. God uses prayer as a means to give us what he wants us to have, what he desires us to have, what he knows we need. It's not that we're convincing him. I think I've used the illustration before of sometimes people tend to think of prayer as arm wrestling God, and if somehow you can get one over on him, you can get him to give uh, you something that he didn't want to give in the first place. As if he's stingy, as if he doesn't want to bless you at all. That's not what John is saying here. That we can go to him and he hears us because he loves us. Because we are coming to him in Jesus Christ, that we are those who have been born of God, as John has said earlier in this epistle. We can have confidence that he is hearing us, and perhaps this can help us to reorient some of our thinking. I know it's something I needed this week, certainly. To recognize that one of the things John is telling us here is that the greatest blessing of prayer is not the things that we get, as wonderful and as nice as those may be. But the greatest blessing of prayer is the fact that in Christ we are heard by God himself. That we have such a relationship with the creator of all things that he hears us as we come to him in prayer in Christ according to his will. That we have God himself to go to in our lives. So this is assurance and prayer. And it leads to our second heading as well. Assurance and sin in verses 16 through 19. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. (coughs) Now perhaps some of you have read 1 John before at numerous occasions and have come across these verses and have wondered what exactly is going on here. Because as simple and as foundational as so much of what John says in this epistle is, sometimes we come across things like this and we think, okay, what does this mean? How am I to interpret it? What am I supposed to get out of it? How am I supposed to respond to it? What does it mean that John says we can pray for those sins who do not lead to death, but what is he talking about the sin that does lead to death? Well, first of all, we can start with the sin not leading to death as we consider assurance and sin. We can ask, what does it mean? What is the sin that does not lead to death? Because it almost seems counterintuitive to to us, doesn't it? Boys and girls, we know what happened to the very first sin, right? In Genesis 3, God promised that in the day you eat from this fruit of this tree that I commanded you not to eat, you shall surely die. And in Hebrew, it basically says, dying you shall die, as if just to take away any doubt that this is a very severe threat that's going to happen. And we know that's where condemnation and guilt and sin came, and death came from is from that first sin. And so how can there be sin that does not lead to death? Well, it's a helpful tip for reading the Bible that we 
know intuitively, and yet we often forget as we practice it, that sometimes we need to keep expanding the context. Keep looking and seeing what has been said before and what's going to be said after this. Of course, we can't really look at what's going to be said after this in 1 John because it's the end. But some of the things he first said here at the beginning of our passage is that we can know that we have eternal life if we believe in the name of the Son of God. And so sins that do not lead to death seem to be, from the context here, from this passage, the sins that believers commit. The sins committed by those to whom John believes he is writing, those who have stayed, those who are continuing to believe, those who are loving God and loving their neighbor and obeying God's commandments because they have faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. What John is saying here is, as we come to God in prayer, even for the sins of our fellow believers, our brothers and sisters, we can know that it is God's will to give life to his own. That we can be confident as we come to him in prayer that he will answer our prayer for our brothers and sisters because that is certainly according to his will. That he wills to give us eternal life. And perhaps this asks an uncomfortable question of us. That when we see our brother and sister sin, when we see them do something that they ought not to be doing, is our first inclination, our first instinct to judge and condemn, to gossip, to puff ourselves up, or is it to intercede for them? We know as Christians we have been given this wonderful assurance, this wonderful relationship with God that John has described for five chapters, and that we have what sometimes we refer to as the priesthood of all believers, that we can all go to God in prayer and intercede for each other. What John is saying here is let's use it. When we see our brothers and sisters sinning, pray for them. Pray for the life and the blessing of God to come upon them. Pray for God to turn them around and to give them repentance and know that this is a prayer according to God's will. And so if this is sin not leading to death, what exactly does it mean that there is sin leading to death, as John says? Well, it just seems to make sense that this is the opposite. That this is the sin that's characteristic of the lives of those who do not believe, who are not regenerate, of those who have walked away and prove that they were never of the people of God in the first place. That death is the opposite of eternal life, and those who do not believe are the opposite of those who do believe. Those who have denied their only Savior, those who have denied the propitiation for their sins. They are the ones who are sinning, and the sinning is as those that are being led to death. And it seems that what John is saying here is that we are not promised that in our prayers for them, they will not be led to death. Now, he doesn't say explicitly not to pray for them. He's just saying, this is what I'm telling you about this, and he's trying to remind you, yes, and there are others other than your brothers and sisters who are sinning. That all sin is lawlessness, and there is a sin that leads not to death, but there is a sin that leads to death. And we can know that those who believe, we can pray for them, that God would rescue them and give them repentance and give them life, and that's according to his will. We can't know that about every single person in the world, though. Not that we aren't to pray for them. We know that we are. But John is once again bringing home the point that this is assurance for those who trust in Christ. To know that even as we sin, even as we pray for others, even as others pray for us, as we're trusting in Christ and they're praying for God to bless us and to give us life, as they're interceding for us, this is a prayer that God will answer because it is a prayer according to his will. That he wills for us to have and to continue to have eternal life for all eternity. That this is something that's according to His will, and that Christians are changed. There is a new life present within us. John says that we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, 
But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now, I realize that's somewhat confusing because it seems like the same phrase is used twice in different ways. But it seems here that we know that everyone who has been born of God refers to Christians, to those who believe. And the one who has been born of God is a reference to Christ, the one who keeps us and protects us from the evil one. John is not arguing for perfectionism here. If he did, he'd be contradicting some of the things he said just even a few pages earlier. But that idea of keeping on sinning, of habitually sinning, of being someone in whom there is no new life, there is no belief, there is no uh, evidence of regeneration, is something that's not true for the people of God. There is a new life. And so even in sin, even in the midst of sin, there can be assurance because we are believing in the Savior. We are believing in the one who is a propitiation for our sins, and we can pray for each other, brothers and sisters, and know that God will hear us and God will answer us as we pray for true believers, because that is his will. And finally, our final point this evening in verses 20 and 21 is assurance and idolatry. And we read there, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, (coughs) so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, if you're like me, you read that last statement, that last sentence, that last verse, and you think, where did that come from? Because it seems like a strange way to end on the face of it. What exactly is John saying here? He's going towards something, he's going towards something, and all of a sudden he brings in idols, something he's never explicitly and directly talked about this entire time, and he says, that's really the last word I want you to have. Little children, keep yourself from idols. And I wonder what exactly is going on here, because there are many ways that John could have ended it. Idolatry is probably not the way that we would expect as we come all the way to chapter 20 of, or verse 20 of chapter 5. It reminds me, I don't know if you've ever been on the freeways in Southern California. This is one thing I learned was very different about California from Nebraska, the place where I grew up, or from Michigan where I lived, or even here in Arizona. You'll be going down the freeways and you'll be coming around a curve because it's much curvier there. And all of a sudden, in the shoulder of the freeway, there's an inexplicable mattress. I don't know why. I don't know where they came from, but they came from many places, it seems, and they were there all the time. I could probably tell you of 20 different mattresses I saw uh, on the freeways of California, and I wasn't on the freeways all that much. I have no idea where they came from, how they got there, how they got all the way over to the shoulder. But you're coming around a turn, and bang, there's a mattress. Not literally bang, I didn't hit one. But you'd see the mattress coming, and you think... What on earth is this? Where did this come from? It's not in the place where you expect it to be. That's sort of what I thought when I first read Little Children Keep Yourself from Idols. Where did this come from? What is John doing? What is he bringing to us here? Why is he ending it this way? Well, it makes sense if you consider what it is that John has truly been saying this entire epistle. But although he's not really used the language of idolatry, that's what he's been talking about. We know that idolatry is any false god, that often in the Old Testament, idolatry was tied to false prophets. We can think of Zechariah 13 and verse 2. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirits of uncleanness. And idolatry, of course, we know, don't we? It's not limited to sticks and stones. Even as we look at the history of Israel, the history of the people of God in the Old Testament, 
Judah comes back from exile. They return into the land, and idolatry is never a problem again. Or is it? Suddenly they're not following after the gods, the nations around them. They're not bowing down to sticks and stones. But as Christ comes, we recognize that they are worshiping a God other than the God revealed in Scripture. That they are doing many of the same things that we're tempted to do. Although idolatry itself is making a comeback. I read an article a few months back that one of the fastest growing religions in Greece is ancient Grecian religion. The religion of the pantheon. But even despite that, even though the fact that most of us have never bowed down and worshipped an idol, we know that we have idolatry in our hearts because we worship and we put emphasis on things other than God in the top place. We come up with gods of our own making in our own minds. What John is saying here is that any god other than the one that I have been proclaiming to you is an idol. In other words, the god that the prophets who have come out from you, the Antichrist, the secessionists, The God that they are proclaiming is an idol. That this is a false God. That you are not to listen to false prophets. You are not to listen to those who peddle false gods. You are not to believe in false gods. Sincerity isn't enough. It might have seemed to them that these people were quite sincere in their proclamation. Quite sincere in their life and in their belief. As sincere as they might have seemed when they were professing Christ, they now seem to be professing someone or another version of Christ, another version of God with equal sincerity. But what John is saying is that this is a different God, don't worship him. If this God is different than the one I proclaimed, have nothing to do with him. And he says that in verse 20, who is the true God? We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. It seems that that is one of the most clear, shortest uh, things in the New Testament that actually declares that Jesus Christ himself is God. And not only that he is God, but he has come to proclaim God to us, in this instance, seeming to be God the Father. It sounds familiar to us, doesn't it? It sounds like what John said in John 1.18, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And so if you trust in Jesus Christ... God want, or John wants you to be comforted. You trust in the true God. You're not trusting in an idol. You're not trusting in a God of your own imagination or of someone else's imagination. You're trusting in the one who has come, who is God himself, who has come to reveal God. We are in the true God, and we have eternal life as a result. John is basically asking us, challenging us, saying, what more could you possibly need? What more could you possibly want than what you have already been given? Don't let those come in and disturb you with their tales of another God. Keep yourselves from idolatry, little children. Look to the true God. Look to Jesus Christ. Look to the Father. Look to the Holy Spirit. Know that the God that I proclaim is the true God who has eternal life. And so as we consider this closing of this epistle, the end of 1 John, what is God calling us to do? He's calling us to repent and to believe in Jesus. And in so believing, to know that we have eternal life. He's calling us to intercede for our brothers and sisters when they sin. To confess our own sins to God and recognize that we have propitiation for our sins, completely and totally. 
He's calling us to love God and to love each other, to love our brothers, the ones that we can see, and God, the one that we cannot see. He's calling us to obey God's commandments, which are not burdensome now because we are in Christ and we're not keeping them for our salvation, but because we have been saved. Ultimately, what he is doing, brothers and sisters, is he's telling you to keep yourself from idols. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this epistle of 1 John, of the comfort, of the assurance it brings to us. We ask, Lord, that you would truly keep us from idols and from idolatry, from anything, whether it's someone else's imagination or our own, that we can put in your place. We know, Lord, that you have revealed yourself to us in nature, of course, and in scriptures, and ultimately in your Son. We thank you, Lord, for him, for the fact that he is the true God, that we know that we are in him as we believe in him, that we have eternal life that we can even be heard by you as we come to you in prayer according to your will. We pray these things only in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.